0: All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we will have uh, the text up on the screens behind me in just a moment. Uh, if you are watching us online right now, uh, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that point. Um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, if you don't have one that you can call your own, claim to, to be yours, uh, I could actually fix that for you uh, today. Uh, we love giving a Bibles away around here. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Uh, chief, among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, we want you to know God. We, we want every uh, corner of your life to be shaped by Him, defined by Him, led by Him. And if the Scriptures, His Word, or what He's going to use to do that in you, uh, we think it's it's advantageous to, to be putting Bibles in people's hands and, and coming up with creative ways for people to, to be reading uh, reading them uh, as much as possible. And so, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, uh, get a hold of me whether it's in person here or through the contact form in the video, and then uh, uh, we can actually knock that out pretty pretty quick. Um, so we kicked off a brand new series last week, right? Uh, we we're we're going to take the scenic route, I think, uh, through the letter that we call First Corinthians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in uh, in the Greek city of Corinth. Um, we think it was written uh, somewhere, w- but between about 53 A.D. and 55 A.D. My theory leans more towards the latter of those two dates, but there's some healthy debate there. Um, and it's written to a church that Paul knows intimately he knows them dearly he loves them well he knows them incredibly well inside and out uh he was there at the beginning when the church of corinth got started uh the the vocabulary that we use in in church circles is that he planted the church he started or began the the church in corinth and so even if even if we go with the later 55 ad date for the writing of this letter it means that he's really only been gone for about three ish years at least, on the, that's on the top end. It could be way less than that. All right? and so uh, the people in Corinth are people he knows incredibly well. Churches always have turnover. Things grow, things shrink, people move on, all that kind of stuff. But not much has changed in three years. He knows this church backwards and inside out. He had actual personal relationships with many of them. And let's be honest, that's more than like three quarters of your Facebook friends, right? right? So like he actually knows these people. And so we also mentioned last week that this is not the first letter that he had written to them. Uh, he had written, at, they had, he had at least written to them once by this point, and they had at least written to him once by this point. Uh, he had sent a letter to them, they had sent a letter back to him. I also completely failed to mention it last week. It was in my notes, but I flew right past it. Uh, Sosthenes, and you remember that guy in verse 1 that you probably struggled to pronounce his name, Sosthenes? Right, we think that he is from Corinth. We don't know exactly who he is. There's some debate over whether or not he's like a, 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 an official of a Synagogue. Uh, We don't know if it's that guy or not, but we're pretty sure he's from Corinth. And he either carried the Corinthian letter to Paul or he carried a personal report to Paul. And so Paul knows exactly what's going on in Corinth right now. And so, all that is to say, Paul knows his audience. He knows who he's talking to. He knows what they struggle with. He knows what their idols and their hang ups are. He knows them. And like a surgeon, we said last week, like a surgeon, he's going to get out the scalpel and he's going to go directly for the tumor. But that tumor, that the core problem to be addressed in quarantine, it wasn't really their long list of sins, and, and trust me, it's it's long. It's, it's in fact it's longer than probably what you or I could sit down and come up with on our own docket or on our own uh, sheet. All right, and so it, it's an incredibly long list of sins. But the core problem in Corinth is was was a failure to understand whose kingdom they actually belonged to. They knew the gospel. They they had submitted to the gospel, but they allowed the influence of other and I would, I would say lesser kingdoms to creep in and begin to claim things, to creep in and define values and to, to dictate terms for them. They had forgotten the transcendent king who had called them to himself. And, and listen, the, the moment that you lose sight of a transcendent king, you begin to think that you're pretty kingly too. That's how it always works. You you lose sight of the transcendent, you start to get impressed with the not transcendent. So they lost sight of their king and they began to elevate themselves. And so that, that long list of sins in Corinth is really nothing more than the inevitable fleshing out, the inevitable finish line of those who have bought into the lie that there's not something better to chase after. They got distracted by petty temporary fading things but then in steps this beautifully upside down kingdom with its otherworldly king with its otherworldly king and he's going to he's going to call us to some things that that honestly look backwards to to what everybody else around us is chasing after and, and, he, and he's going to reshape us to, to value and, and to love things that the rest of the world tends to despise. And, and he's going to even command us to, to spend ourselves and, and, and lay ourselves bare for things that this world, the world that we're living in, the world that, that so surrounds us, that this world can't make any sense of. And in that moment, in that moment, that otherworldly king is either a tyrant or he can actually deliver on his promises to us. It's either one or the other. There's no middle ground here, there's no in between. Tyrant or cosmic promise keeper. And so last week we asked the question okay, but is his kingdom beautiful? Right? Like, Uh, Forget about for a moment whether or not it initially makes any sense to us. In fact, I I would argue that it probably doesn't initially make any sense to us. Our initial reaction is likely going to be one of confusion or one of doubt. But but lay that aside for, for half a second and just ask the question, is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answer to those questions are yes, then who cares what it costs us on the front end? Who who cares how high that hurdle is? Jump it. Jump in the deep end and let him do something awesome with it. But that was last week. You ready to see how Paul shows off this beautiful kingdom today? Starting in verse four. 1 Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse four Paul says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So let's call time out there. All right, so about two-thirds of Paul's letters start out exactly this way. He follows his initial greeting with a word of thanksgiving. He just tacks it right on to the end of that. You see this play out this way in Romans. You see this uh, in Philippians. You see this in uh, Colossians. You see it in both of the uh, the Thessalonian letters. So it's a pretty common move for Paul. Initial greeting, word of thanksgiving, right? And so we we asked this question many, many moons ago when we were looking at Romans together. It's well over a year ago now, uh, but back when we were looking at the first part of Romans together, we asked this question because he's got this little thanksgiving greeting. We asked the question, do you think Paul's sincere? Do you, do you think he actually is thankful for them, or, or is he just kind of buttering, up, buttering them up a little bit, all right? You ever—, you ever been on the receiving end or maybe the giving end of, of a letter like that, a hard letter or, or a phone call? You, you start out with something polite to say to kind of soften the blow, not necessarily for manipulative purposes, but you just, you just want to be a little friendly before you got to do the hard thing, right? Oh, am I the only one that does that? I, I, I'm the only sinner, I guess. All right. all right, so no, no, we all, we've all done that, right? Uh, like, some people are full-on bait-and-switch. They don't care, right? But there's other people, they're, they're just trying to they are just trying to be polite. They're just trying to be nice, right? There, there are others who ascribe to the bad news sandwich philosophy of life. Have you ever come across that? Bad news first, then you get, or you get some good news, and then you, get, you slip some bad news in there, and you follow it right up again with some, some more good news to, so that everything comes in one bite. Oh, y- y'all haven't lived. Okay, all right. No, that's the bad news sandwich so is that what Paul's doing here is he is he is he establishing some some good stuff so he can hit him with the bad in a second or do you think he's actually sincere is he actually thankful for them I, I think he's genuine I, I really do I, I think he's genuine we talked last week about how Paul is he's not really the type to pull a punch I don't know if you know that about his his personality. the The more you study his writings, the the more you uh, the more you're convinced that Paul just doesn't care what people think. He, he's not he's not too worried about it. And if 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 a punch needs to be thrown, that's what he's gonna do. He's not the type to 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 pull a, a punch at at all. He isn't he's got no need to to play games. He's he has no need to position himself in such a way to to better land the the, the rebuke. I think he's speaking truthfully here. He's he's thankful for them. But don't they give him a lot of problems? Yeah. Yeah, a whole bunch of them. In fact, I I get the impression that he's consistently frustrated with the Corinthian church. Like, all the time. And based on the frequency of his writings, I, I mean, he seems to be consistently correcting things that they should have already figured out long before now. They just don't get it. I told you that Philippians also has a a word of thanksgiving. When you you read Philippians, it kind of reads like a parent talking to their grown child that's just knocking it out of the park. You ever had one of those conversations? Great great job, sweetie. You're nailing it. Here's a couple of things to consider. You ever had one of those conversations? You ever been on the receiving end of one of those conversations? But with Corinthians, Corinthians reads different. Corinthians is more like the parent talking to their child that's just walking in total rebellion. That's the tone here. There's there's an urgency and a a desperation to the plea. But but love is equally present in both letters. It's just as present. In fact, I, I think I can make a pretty solid argument that Paul might have loved Corinth more than he loved all the other churches he was connected to. I think he cares more about them and wants to see more for them and, and his concern stays up at night waiting, thinking about them more than he ever does any of the other churches his, he's connected to. In, in 2 Corinthians, the, the next letter that he writes, he speaks to the unique, the unique pride that he has, and the unique joy that he has for the Corinthian church. They share a bond together that I think goes deeper than his connection with Thessalonica. I think it's deeper than his connection even at even at Philippi. Despite his heartache, despite their inability to get it figured out, there is nothing, and I, and I think it I mean nothing, absolutely nothing that Paul would not give in order to see them walk in maturity. Maybe, maybe you're a parent who's, who has that kind of relationship with your child. You get it. They're the one you think about. They're the one you agonize over. They're the one you just cannot let go. Paul wants desperately, desperately to see them walk in maturity so the letters keep coming. Paul's never going to walk away from them despite the difficulty, despite the heartache. He is going to continue to engage that's that otherworldly love that we talked about last week, right? It doesn't just exist in some theoretical headspace for Paul. No, he's living it as he engages them, he presses in. So I, I truly believe that Paul is genuinely thankful here. I think every time he thinks of them, he's proud of this, and he's proud of that. And yeah, he wants to fix this big old pile of stuff over here, but he is genuinely thankful for them, and he's willing them to to continue taking their steps. And so the question then becomes, what exactly is he thankful for? Well, we got a clue to that in verse 4, but it's spelled out more fully in verse 5. Let's let's read 4 and 5 again. It says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the what? the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So there's that clue. Look at verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Okay, so Corinth was, was known as a pretty sophisticated place. And by sophisticated, I mean first century sophistry. All right first century Greek sophistry uh, about four to five hundred ish years before Paul is writing this letter the Sophist guys like Plato and Socrates and their schools uh, they were they spent they were seen I think by by the enlightened world uh, in their day as the possessors of wisdom they were the ones that that held wisdom and imparted wisdom uh, but wisdom can't can't merely be you know just kind of walked up to and attained it's got to be earned a little bit and so you've got to kind of uh, kind of journey your way to wisdom in greek thought and so the the sophist would stand and they would give these elaborate speeches in order to to weave complex philosophical paths and lead their followers to enlightenment that that's that's the game that the sophists played 500 years before this letter is written and so when most people think of greek philosophy that's the era that you're thinking of right right whether you took a course in college or or maybe you just kind of heard about it and google some stuff that's kind of the era that's kind of the time frame that people go ah yes greek philosophy the the the, the pinnacle of of human Reason or whatever you want to title you want to give to it. But by the time it gets to Paul's day, four to five centuries later, it doesn't look like what it used to look like. And it really kind of devolved into nothing more than empty speeches and grandstanding. Seen as a kind of sport for them. Professional and semi-professional orators would would gather a crowd in their local theater and They'd throw around big, lofty rhetoric in order to just entertain some folk. It's a good thing to do on a weekend. They'd take the local debates of their day, and they'd pick them apart, and they'd overanalyze them and theologize them all for the sake of just hearing themselves talk. Which, let's be honest, is another layer that Corinth looks a lot like our culture, right? That's probably why, if you do ever come across the word sophist, You never hear it in the positive sense. It used to be a big deal. It used to be a good thing. 5th century B.C., they were the height of intellect and culture. 21st century A.D., the sophist is someone who merely talked about problems instead of doing something to fix it. That's what it's devolved into. Go ahead and insert the most popular leader of your political opponents here. That's what we see them as, talkers rather than doers. Greek intellectual culture had definitely taken this turn by the time that Paul steps onto the scene. It's it's the it's the culture that he's tasked with preaching the gospel into. And so th- there's there's no debate that the epicenters for this kind of thought and 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 paradigm. There's no debate that the epicenters for this were Athens and Alexandria during this part of history. But boy, didn't Corinth want to be in that club? They wanted to be like Athens, and they wanted to be like Alexandria, and so forget about the other things that, that might be going on in the city. You were, you were something in that town if you could gather a crowd and keep them entertained. You were the big boy, and if you could mix it with the other big boy intellects, you carried some status in that town. Couple that with the fact that Corinth seems to have a booming economy during this part of the part of history. Something that we haven't actually talked about yet. A lot of commerce flowed through town. Uh, they're, they're in the middle of uh, the Greek Isthmus. And so Greece, if you look at a map, you got two pieces. You have a northern piece and a southern piece. Corinth was sitting in the little skinny part that connected the, the two. And so uh, th- there was a lot of commerce through town. The later, there would be a, a canal built through uh, the Isthmus, but they would actually roll ships over on logs from the one side of the port to the other side. Uh, Corinth wasn't a port itself. But it was kind of the in the, middle, in the middle middle flanked by ports, and it was the big town that kind of was used as the administrative hub for all the commerce flowing back and forth. And so uh, there was was a lot of cash flowing through Corinth. Big business means expendable income. That's what it means. It means cash in the purse to start spending on some things that, that you wish other folks to see about you. And so Corinth, who prided themselves on this sophistry in this elevated lofty speech they they figured out if they threw a little money at the philosophers down in athens and alexandria they could come play for our team instead free agencies are really fun time of year if your team has more money to spend than the other team it's not so fun when everybody's pulling your players away but if you're the one with cash you're sitting pretty tall right so, that, so Corinth started just throwing money at people and they would get these guys to come hang out in Corinth instead of Athens or Alexandria. And so uh, so what happened is that, that the elevated talent of the city began to, to flow through the city and elevated talent always leads to elevated expectations. Always. It took more and more and more to keep the crowd entertained. You had to deliver and you had to do so winsomely right this is a results based business keep the, keep the machine going and and because the entire culture of the city revolved around this elevated articulate reality that culture existed in the Corinthian church as well it wasn't an outside thing it was an inside thing it permeated every corner of their society but but it wasn't necessarily for ill I think there's, there's a lot we can point to and say it damaged this and it damaged this and it damaged this, but Paul doesn't decry their articulate tongue. He doesn't decry their speech and their knowledge here. He celebrates it. He's thankful to God for that. The gospel at times needs to be spoken with an elevated articulation. It needs to. The gospel's not some uninvited intruder into the higher philosophies of the world. It can go toe to toe with all of them. God's plan to save sinners from their sin is higher and truer and more life giving than any man made nonsense that's ever been dreamt up. Full stop. It never, and I mean never, has been the underdog in any kind of serious battle of the intellect. God's gospel is bigger than that. So a sharp mind and a smooth tongue, they can, emphasis on can. Be used for good they can the problem though is that we all know way too many examples of them being used for the exact opposite of that right they just keep rolling out over and over and over again while the gospel is right at home among the higher minds and the fancy talkers we've all seen our share of logic and rhetoric being used to tear good things apart and leave this world in ruins Seems to be more often than not, actually. And so, what makes for the difference then? Where's, where's the demarcation line between tongue and knowledge being used for God's glory, and then what we all often see it play out as? What, what, what makes for the difference there? Well, I think like any other good thing, it ultimately comes down to a core level understanding and appreciation for, for both the, the source of that, the source by which it came to you, and, and the purpose for which you have it. I, I think the, the divider between used for good and used for not good is really just a deep core level appreciation and understanding of who gave that to you and what he gave it for. Firstly, who made the Corinthians knowledgeable and articulate? It seems like an obvious answer, but it's one that needs to be spoken out loud, right? God did. Not the Corinthians. God did. Not the elevated talent of the city. God did. He's the one that gets the credit for that. Secondly, though, why did he choose to give them those gifts? Why did he give those gifts to them? And the answer is for the mission of the church, and for his glory. There, there is no other answer. Oh, but wait a second, Stephen. Those things all existed and were valued in their culture and were valued in their homes long before any of these people became Christians. I mean, this church is only a handful of years old, right? Paul spent about a year and a half there, we think, uh, beginning the church in Corinth before we moved on to Ephesus. And, and even if we go with the latter, he was gone for three years, part, like, the church is at most like five years old, maybe more like four or four and a half years old. right And so if all we're counting are the, the Corinthian natives, let, let's assume that maybe a couple of people moved into town from other places, right? But if all we're counting are Corinthian natives, then the most mature believers in the room would have been Christians for less than five years by this point. They're all, I would call them baby Christians, right? There's a lot of things they don't understand yet and haven't been discipled to understand yet. Nobody there had grown up in the faith. Nobody there had parents that were uh, discipling them and raising them up in the Lord, teaching them that, that God created them and wired them to do this and to do this. None of them had that. All of them had families and careers, hobbies and passions long before they ever knew anything about the church. They were fully functional adults and probably were pretty good at it. And so the question is, does, does God really get to take credit for those things? Well, we can answer that question with some other questions. Did God create the Corinthians, yes or no? Yeah. Did he wire them inside and out to love certain things, enjoy certain things, pursue certain things? Yes or no? Did he sovereignly open their eyes to see the depth of their sin and the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice? Did he bring them together as a, as a church family to know and be known, to serve and to serve? If yes, then he does get to claim all those things. But It goes even a layer beyond that because, because Paul says that God enriched them. He didn't just equip them. He enriched them. He took all of those good things and that he gave them before they ever knew him and, and upon calling them to himself, he expanded those gifts and he refined those gifts and he empowered those gifts and he gave those gifts eternal purpose. God is not merely the giver of the instruments. He's the maestro that leads his orchestra to play his otherworldly masterpiece. He's the giver of the gifts and the organizer and ultimate user of the gifts. If we would but only set our selfish ambition aside and instead follow his lead, just watch what he does with it. But that's not all Paul that, want, that Paul wants to point to here. He squeezes in a little parenthetical statement in verse 6. You'll see the little, uh, little m-dash after knowledge there. Verse 6 even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So Paul is going to attack their their selfish misuse of their gifts all throughout this letter, right? That, that's going to be a tone that he strikes over and over and over again. Right? They, they use them to elevate themselves and to exalt themselves rather than to serve each other and to serve God's purposes. It became these tools that they would use for selfish gain rather than for God glorifying gain. And, and so there there even seems to be some in the church as we read through this letter who wanted respect so badly that they just outright faked spiritual gifts in order to gain attention right so that's the kind of level of nonsense that's that's going on in Corinth Paul's going to have to address that too but despite all their failures despite all their sin the presence of those gifts when they were true gifts guys the presence of those gifts are still a proof that God was working in them It was a seal that God was doing something there. They had had heard and received the testimony about Jesus from Paul himself. And and listen, when God plants his flag, he doesn't go back and unplant it. He had established his work there. It was was shown off in these gifts, and the fact that those gifts are there is proof that, that God was there, and he ain't going away. They're marked by a whole lot of sin and immaturity, but but those good things that God has given them are still a proof, a seal that he's working in them and through them, and he ain't done. Now, in case you're hearing what I'm not saying, let me make it very, very clear. That seal does not ignore their selfishness and their sin. He does not ignore their misuse of their gifts. Repentance is going to be called for over and over and over again throughout this letter. But thanks be to God, man. He is faithful enough to not be burdened by their failure to be faithful. He's not dependent upon their faithfulness in order to get the job done. God is working his purposes in them and through them and he was never dependent upon the Corinthians' ability to figure it out. What he began, he will finish. And that's really good news for me, but because for the grace of God go I. I need that grace as desperately as they needed that grace. I like to pretend. I really do. Like I've got, I've got things better figured out than all the, the train wrecks that we're going to read in this letter, but then I'm dumb enough to go look in the mirror. And I learn very clearly that that's not true. I learn otherwise. I need, hear me, I need the promise that God is going to work in spite of me. I need that. For all the junk that needs to be cleaned up in Corinth, hope is not lost there. God is not done. And Paul can celebrate that. He can point to that. He can be genuinely thankful for that. He can call them to rest in that before getting to work cleaning up the junk. God's not done. Yes, we got this fire that we got to put out, but God's not done. He's still here. Look what he's doing. But it's not just knowledge and speech that they excel in. Look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for whatever reason, God threw a whole bunch of blessing and ability at Corinth. They seem to be more talented and gifted than everybody else out there, or at least more than I get to be. You ever notice that sometimes the most intelligent, talented people in the world need a good, healthy smack upside their head so that they start walking straight? Am I the only one that's noticed that? Seems to be the prescription that Paul is dispensing here. He says that they they eagerly wait for Jesus to return. Jesus is the one that's going to sustain them to the end. Not, not halfway, not, not in some will they be saved or won't they kind of limbo. Paul says guiltless. He says that Jesus will sustain them and they will be guiltless, counted as guiltless. I mean, can we be honest? That's a pretty bold thing to say when you know Corinth's history, Corinth's reputation. That's a big promise. If anybody has the ability to run the train off the rails, it's Corinth. If anybody can mess up God's plan, it's Corinth. And if even they can't, what does that say about you and me? What does it say about us? The Corinthians, they will not stand guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ because they figured out how to get rid of the junk. Or because they figured out how to get rid of their guilt. They're as guilty as anybody can be. They're as guilty as anybody can be. We're we're talking about picture-in-the-dictionary kind of levels here. No, they they stand guiltless because their guilt was paid for by the death of their Savior in their place. Jesus died on the cross to make propitiation for their sins, payment for their sins. It was covered by his shed blood. The wrath owed for their guilt was soaked up fully in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He took their sin and in exchange, his perfect righteousness was given to clothe them. And so flawed followers of Jesus in Corinth and flawed followers of Jesus at Nashua Baptist can both stand guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ because our king was guiltless for us. Have you trusted in that finished work on your behalf? Have you trusted that? Who cares what you call yourself now and who cares what you called yourself in the past? Have you trusted that? We're not as messed up as Corinth was, not even close, but we need grace as desperately as Corinth did. In a moment, we're not there yet. We got more to look at, but in a moment, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. That that'll be a time for us to respond to God's word. If you're if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can change that this morning, right? You can respond to Him in repentance and faith. You you can follow Him as Savior and Lord. And, and so when that time comes, when we actually get there, I'm gonna I'm gonna be down front here if you want somebody to talk to, or maybe you're watching us online. You can use the the contact form that we got linked in the video. Uh, either way, man, I'd love to help you. I'd love to be helpful to you as you figure out what that response of faith looks like. You can can respond to him and his grace this morning, the full and final work to pay for your sin on the cross and save you from that sin and make you blameless, guiltless on the day of of his coming. You can respond to that today. But what about those of us? What about those of us who've already responded to that? What about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? Well, there's one more verse to cover. Look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Follower of Jesus, our call always is, always will be until Jesus comes back. Our call is to lean into his faithfulness. Rather than try to hold him off at, at arm's length, we instead, we, we repent of our sin and we lean into his goodness and he has called us to find our rest in deeply fellowshipping with him. And fellowship is a word that everybody likes, right? Like, like who hates fellowship? That's a happy word. Everybody likes fellowship. You think of good times, you think of deep conversations. If you're a Baptist, you think of fried chicken. All right, Fellowship's a good word. And make no mistake about it. I think God expects us to find joy, deep, otherworldly abiding joy in walking deeply with him. But listen, it's not merely fellowship that's on the table here that Paul's talking about. Paul is clear to identify who that fellowship is with. It's not fellowship between you and me and some fried chicken. Who's he say? Over and over again, he keeps dropping the title of Lord here. He keeps dropping the title of Lord. Every, everybody in our world likes Jesus. He's a blast at parties out here. Healing people, putting religious folk in their place. Who doesn't love, who doesn't love them from Jesus? A few less people in our world like Jesus Christ, right? Jesus the Christ. You know, he's the one who came to save us from our sins. He's still pretty popular in a lot of circles. I I mean, he supposedly did that really nice thing for us that one time, right? There are even less folk out there who truly love and fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord. The one who has infinite right to make demands on every atom of your existence. That one. And this is yet another, in a long list of moments throughout this letter, this is is another one of those moments that, that Christ's kingdom is intentionally, on purposely, upside down from the most celebrated and pursued values of our world. It's upside down. He will make demands on you that you don't like, period. Pastor, you don't want to stop that? No. He will make demands on you that you don't like, period. He will call you to take all of the things that you're good at and all of the things that believe make you special, believe that you've accomplished and would prefer to celebrate about yourselves, he will call you to give him the credit for that. He'll call you to use those things for his purposes instead of your own, to use them to serve others rather than to serve yourself. He'll call you to use them to glorify his name instead of vainly (laughs) wasting your time trying to glorify you. He'll call you to that. And in that moment, he is either a tyrant or he can actually deliver on his promises to you. either one or the other. There is no middle ground. There is no in-between. Tyrant or cosmic promise keeper. His promise, he promises that investments in his coming kingdom can never be destroyed by moth or rust. They can never be stolen by thieves who try to break in. He's either a madman, brazenly calling himself Lord while he can never deliver on a word of it, or he's actually the good king who can be trusted with everything without even the slightest hint of reservation in you. Make no mistake about it, his call to fellowship deeply with him is 100% upside down at least when it's held up next to the things that everybody else is going to tell you that you deserve to chase after in this life. It will be upside down. The question to be answered, though, is, is it beautifully upside down? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if it does, who cares? Who cares what it'll cost you on the front end jump over the hurdle follower of jesus our response is the same as it is every single week we repent of sin and we press deeply into his goodness i'm going to pray we're going to sing whoever you are and however god has called you to respond let's do that together right now father you're good to us thank you for the scriptures Thank you for 1 Corinthians, a letter that we're even now beginning to feel the weightiness of its otherworldly call. God, would you help us to see its beauty before we get skittish and run off, before we try to cling to lesser kingdoms. God, help us to see that you are the giver and the sustainer and the applier of every good thing you've given us. You deserve the credit alone that anything that I would make for myself is futile at best, blindly idolatrous on most days. God, call me to repentance. Rip my fingers away from lesser things. Help me press deeply into you and yours. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Draw men and women to your kingdom today for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.